I have one question for all of you this week. Who's bad? <laughs> Welcome to Turntables and Tea. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week we are discussing the one and only king of pop, Michael fucking Jackson. Pardon my French there, but I have to say it. <laughs> Even though he has the same middle name as I do, Joseph, which, yes, love that. There you but, go. And we will be discussing his 1987 blockbuster album, Bad. Oh, I can't wait for this one. What an album. Yes. So I'm going to make an assumption and say that if you're listening, you know who Michael Jackson is. He's probably at this point the biggest artist of all time. He's up there. I mean, he's he's definitely up there. I think his only contest is the Beatles. I think he might have surpassed Elvis at this point somehow. That's the big three. I mean, that's who he was shooting to or striving to uh, surpass, especially at this point where Bad was being released in 87. Yeah. So for a bit of context on this album, in case you don't know, I'm assuming most of you do. In late 1982, Michael Jackson released an album called Thriller. It did okay. It only sold 70 million copies worldwide. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Only. Yeah, it's the biggest selling album of all time. Broke records of all kind. It became a household item. And Michael Jackson was the biggest star on the planet. He dominated the world. 83, 84. He was everywhere. Inescapable. I wasn't there for it. But I've read about it and uh, I've never seen a phenomenon like that in my lifetime when it comes to a musician. We'll start off with the hot tea uh, because you're talking about not being there. Little known fact, other to my immediate family, a young Corey was a diehard 120 million percent Michael Jackson fanatic. I had a homemade sequins glove that uh, my mom made for me. I was the hit at any wedding because my moonwalking skills were surpassed by only the uh, the originator himself, Michael Jackson. But <laughs> it was a time where I was throughout my childhood. I was all about Michael, you know. So after Thriller, and now now mind you, I was I was a baby after Thriller. But I remember the press coming up into band, like you know, like I knew Michael that that much yeah, magazines this and that and even though he had come out of thriller and was top of the world when you get around 85 86 he was in the the media had started to really come at him you know this is when wacko jacko started this is when he started to to push away and actually have a real problem not problem a real challenge and a real struggle with his celebrity life um, so these five years in between Thriller and Bad were a super tumultuous roller coaster for him. Uh, and we really see it. We really see it, you know, when, when it comes out in Bad. I, I, I'll give the background on this. This is his seventh studio album. Like we said, five years in between that and Thriller. Uh, this is the last time, and I don't know if they knew this going in, but this is the last time that uh, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson will, will work together uh, on an album. This was their final collaboration. And if they didn't know it was going to be their final collaboration, they sure as hell wrote it like it was going to be their final. They they let you know no stone unturned. 
everything on this album, it, it goes all over pop, rock, funk, R&B, dance, soul, hard rock. And he hits all the styles, but he also talks a lot about everything, you know, his, his problems with the media, uh, racial profiling, romance. Of course, it's Michael Jackson, self-improvement. And he, he always puts the world peace in there, too. You know, we see Stevie Wonder on this album. We see Sida Garrett on this album. It's it's a great one. It's a great one. I, I'm so gosh darn excited to do this album. Oh, so am I. And uh, so while I wasn't there, I am definitely a fan of Michael Jackson. One of my very favorites in my top five artists ever. Love the guy. So speaking of Quincy Jones, it was natural that they would work together again after the success of both Off the Wall and then Thriller especially. But with Thriller, MJ... He had a healthy ego, let's say, and who wouldn't after you'd sold as many albums as he did and taken over the world? He felt that he was untouchable at this time, and he told himself, this next album is going to be bigger than Thriller, and it's going to sell 100 million copies. This was what he told himself. Now, this was a high goal, and admittedly an unrealistic one. It didn't quite happen. And uh, part of that, I do think, had to do with, again, the media beginning to turn against him because he'd gotten a bit more eccentric. He got his pet chimp bubbles at this point. And there were a lot of odd rumors like, oh, he bought the elephant man's bones. Like he was he'd become wacko jacko to many, especially in America. Yeah, more so in America than, yes. than around the world. More, um, Americans love to eat that. And we all, you know, we all do it, but we love to eat up that conspiracy that what don't we know, you know, uh, rather than really just resting on the laurels of, of Thriller. You, you were saying coming out of Thriller, he, he was up there top of the world. And in my opinion, most people would have a little bit of a struggle with you know, how am I going to follow that up? I, even in 2017, Newsweek said it the best. Has there ever been a more difficult album to make than Michael Jackson's Bad? Because how the hell do you follow up Thriller? It's like following up the Bible. I never felt like he thought that, you know? It's not like he struggled to pop this album out. A lot of this stuff he was writing demos for as early as 82 while he was still, uh, you know, doing stuff with the Jacksons. I feel like Michael just had all this music and he's like, let's do another one. You know, he felt confident enough to come back out into the, the world's eye and he popped another banger out. No, he was overflowing with ideas. And so another thing about this album, more so than before, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson butted heads because Michael Jackson was at this point almost 30 and he finally become a musical adult, I guess you could say. After all, if you started as a child, it can take some time for you to develop your own identity because you're so used to being told what to do, which he was being with both one, his father, and then at Motown, because Barry Gordy, he told everybody what to do. Heard. And now that he had more freedom and had the clout to get more freedom, he had more ideas, and he butted heads a bit with Quincy Jones on it. Their main arguments centered on the use of technology on this album a lot of cutting edge sounds such as the synclavier synthesizer were used heavily on this album quincy jones didn't always agree with that and michael did get his way when it came to the simps but one major argument that jones did win was the length of the album michael jackson wanted this album to be i've read both 30 or 33 songs wow i had no idea which is crazy. And Quincy Jones said no. 
don't do that. That's too much. We don't need it. And I do think he was right. 30 songs would have been too much. This didn't need to be the White Album. And for another example, I'm going to use. So before this, the most anticipated follow-up was probably Fleetwood Mac's Tusk following Rumors. That was a double album. It was very different from Rumors, but it didn't do quite as well. I think they wanted to avoid making that mistake probably again. And it would have been overkill. I mean, I've heard the unreleased tracks. Many of them have come to light over the years and were eventually released, but they're not on par quite with the 11 that they chose for the album. And they made, in my opinion, pretty close to perfect album. Agreed. I don't think any of these songs are bad. I think most of them, I have something good to say about all of them. There are definitely ones that I like more than others, of course, (laughs) but we will discuss that. And uh, of course, this album was highly anticipated. It was released on August 31st, 1987, two days after MJ's 29th birthday. Obviously, it immediately broke sales records, Unfortunately, we didn't have sound scan yet, so we don't know the exact numbers, but it was huge immediately. And it wasn't as big as Thriller, but it was still only the biggest selling album of 1987 and 1988 worldwide. And still has managed to sell 35 million copies worldwide. Insane numbers. And it debuted, what, number one the whole way through? Oh, yeah. It was in the U.S. it debuted at number one. And it stayed there for six weeks. And interestingly, I think this is the main proof of his reputation taking over his music a bit. In 1988, when many of the song's singles were out there and on the charts, he wasn't the biggest U.S. artist anymore. In fact, this album was actually number five on the Billboard 200 for 1988. Who was one? Madonna? George Michael, Faith. Oh, no shit. Okay, that makes sense. But it actually does. That album was very successful. And Michael was, George Michael was a little less threatening and eccentric at this point in time. That would change a bit over time, according to some, but. (laughs) So, yeah, MJ did fall a bit. And in fact, Rolling Stone readers ranked him as, no, they voted him as the worst male singer of 1988 and bad as the worst album. Wow. But. It was because they weren't really focusing on the music. They were focusing on the persona. Uh, that's a whole nother podcast for me. We, we do. That's one rabbit hole. I'll let you know right now. We do not want to get into is the public's perception. And in my opinion, the the ultimate downfall of Michael Jackson is just the way people started to carry him. You know, regardless yep. of truth or not truth, it just. Anyway, I've said enough yes. already. That's a whole nother podcast for me to do a goddamn miniseries on that. <laughs> yes, but fortunately, we're still at a pretty healthy point for him. And the tour for this album was a huge success. Yeah, Chris, this was this is his first solo tour in the U.S., right? Worldwide. This was his first tour without his brothers. <laughs> and yeah, he still had the tour behind Thriller. It was the victory tour Dude, with the Jacksons. I remember seeing footage of these, like these shows during that tour and like 
people getting crushed in the front rows. And as a kid, not understanding why they were fainting or what was going on, the severity of it. But as an adult, looking back on that, like, holy shit, man. Like I've been in the front of some, some giant, giant festivals, concerts, what have you. But I never, never seen anything like that. The stuff we used to see on the news was insane. Yeah, I've seen the clips. It is insane. And this tour in the late 80s grossed $125 million. Over 4.4 million tickets sold worldwide. Insanity. We were still at a really good point for Michael. And fortunately, that has aged really well. It's continued to be regarded well it's been more well regarded in the years since its initial release it's now known as a landmark of 80s pop it's continued to sell and spike lee in his documentary on the album said bad 25 listen to the ever chart topping albums of 1987 which one still sounds fresh bad yep i i I didn't write that down and while you were going i was thinking like who said that man what a what a beautiful, perfect statement. Listen to it. I I challenge anybody, listen to it and see which one. So sounds like you could pop it on the radio and sell copies today. It it is bad. I think Faith has held up pretty well too, though, actually. But some of there was like Whitney by Whitney Houston. I love it. It does sound like it's from 1987. Yeah. Yeah, Faith, you're right. Faith holds up. Yeah. Faith doesn't sound too dated, but the use of the technology here really helps this album still sound fresh. And that's why we still hear these songs today. So with that being said, we've been going on for a bit. Let's actually get started on the album itself. All right. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The opening track is the title track, Bad. The song was originally titled Pay, which is odd. So the backstory to this song is almost as legendary as the song itself because this was supposed to be a duet with the purple one himself, Prince. This didn't happen. And it pretty much boils down to one reason. There's a lot of stories, but at the end of the day, it was because Prince opposed the opening line, your butt is mine. And Really? Yep. Never knew that. Yeah, there's a great clip of Chris being interviewed by Chris Rock. And he's asked about Mr. Jackson and mentions bad. And he says, now, who's going to sing this to who? Because I show ain't singing it to you and you show ain't singing it to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great clip. <laughs> yeah, I've always loved this song. I got my first MJ CD when I was 10. It was History. The two CD set, which had an album on one disc and the hits on the other. This was on there along with three other songs from this album. Always loved this one. This is just a banger. Yeah, uh, this was the statement piece. I mean, of course, it's the this, you know, the the album's name. But this was Jackson's statement piece of I'm edgier, I'm older, I'm bad. 
the sounds and and the equipment that we had already started to talk about that he wanted to use on this you know the electronic drums um that 80s sound is all right here it's edgy and it's a perfect way to start this album something i never knew uh reading about going back and reading about this track is that jackson said that it was influenced by a real life story about a young man who tried to escape poverty by attending private school and then end up being killed when he returned home I don't know if I I tried to relate it in the lyrics and whatnot, um, and I never knew that before, but it was interesting to find out that that was the inspiration uh, for this song. So interestingly, that excellent column I read, the number ones, of course, this song was in it, and the column mentioned that but that's the plot of the video. The song itself is just a lot of tough talk, pretty much, but it works. So right. it doesn't matter. And basically, I think that I agree with that assessment. It is the video, definitely. Definitely. What that's influenced by. The song is really just a statement for Michael Jackson to say, yeah, I'm bad. I think MJ at times wanted to... Uh, give a deeper meaning than he needed to say there's a big story behind it. I feel like that might've been part of his mythology at this time. In reality, I think he was really just trying to say, yeah, I'm bad. Who's bad? And it worked. Yep. It definitely did. And interestingly, this is an odd thing. This was actually the second single from the album. But it was basically the first single, if that makes sense, because the actual first single, I feel like, was basically just a promotional single. There was no video for it. This song had a grand arrival. The video debuted on CBS in primetime as part of a TV special, and it was an 18-minute video directed by Martin Scorsese about a kid from the streets. It's basically an 80s version of West Side Story, and Mike's rival is played by Wesley Snipes. So (laughs) according to Prince, if it were a duet, Prince would have been the Wesley Snipes character. I could see that. I mean... It's an iconic video. The image just exudes cool. They're dancing in the subways. Uh, Honestly, it looks cooler than West Side Story, I think. I love West Side Story, but it does look cooler with the lever and all that. Of course. And and in in a way, it harkens back to the beat uh, feeling on, on that video, you know? Yes. And I think it's an effective sequel. And... This is definitely one of his best videos and songs. The song sounds hard, but it's still familiar. This was a great introduction to Michael Jackson. This was really the perfect way to introduce this new era because the actual first single was a tease. It was a promo single. It just couldn't be just that at that point is what I believe. What was the first single? I Just Can't Stop Loving You. Really? Yeah. Okay. But there's no video for it. Gotcha. So what difference does it make, really? This was the grand statement, and it was enough of a statement that somebody named Weird Al Yankovic was once again inspired by Mr. Jackson to do a parody called Fat. You know I'm fat. (laughs) And the video was also a send-off of the bad video, and it's Awesome to see Weird Al in the fat suit trying to get through the subway. 
turnstiles. See, you don't remember. Oh, man. When that first came out, it was like, oh, my gosh. Even as a hardcore fan, you can't hate when Weird Al does his thing. Uh, you know, he started to, like, slowly explode out of the suit in the video. Uh, I, In fact, I sang You Know You're Fat for years after that. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, Weird Al has never done a parody without an artist or songwriter's permission. Heard, heard. So that's why it's okay when he does it. You can't get mad at him. Michael Jackson's credited as a writer of fat because it is a parody of bad. And my favorite thing about it, the album that fat was on is called Even Worse. <laughs> it has Weird Al in the leather jacket with his nerd hair and glasses. I just love it. And of course he had to do it because Weird Al's breakout single was Eat It, which is a parody of Beat It. So he had to go back to the Michael Jackson well, and he did so successfully. That he did, that he did. But enough about that. Obviously, iconic song, number one hit throughout the world. Everybody still knows it 35 years later, rightfully so. One of the best tracks of all time ever. Love it. And now we're on the track number two. How do we follow up bad with a song called The Way You Make Me Feel? Yeah, you follow up bad with a swagalicious drum intro that I challenge anybody not to dance around as soon as it starts. This is such a great feel good song and it, it drives right out of bed. You know, I, I'm moonwalking around the house at this point. I'm dancing every time it comes on. Uh, and, and this track, in my opinion, lays the groundwork. Of course, he's inspired artists that we still hear and love to this day. I most closely equate Justin Timberlake with with Michael Jackson in my listening and in his mannerisms uh, on stage earlier stage, but still stage period. Um, and you hear you hear the way you make me feel in stuff that we still hear today. Uh, great track. God damn great track. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because this song also has a very clear influence before it for MJ. It's Stevie Wonder. Heard. It's very clear. I mean, I hear it. It's basically the synclavier is basically a progression of what Stevie Wonder was doing. The baseline is all that. MJ even admitted to Stevie Wonder that he took the line "Go on, girl" from his so from the Stevie Wonder song "Go Home." No shit. That's awesome. I never knew that. And this song was showcased to show that Michael Jackson can be a flirt. That was what it did, and it was another number one hit, sadly, for only one week, but still a number one hit, so that's good. And uh, this is the first song I remember hearing on the album. I always enjoyed it, never knew who it was by, what it was called. I know this was on a CD when my uncle got married the second time. He had a mixed CD for the wedding because it was the mid-2000s. That was what you did. and. Of course, this song was on there. It was like the only non-country song I remember on there. But what a banger. I didn't know who it was or what it was called. But when I got the History CD, I found out, oh, Michael Jackson, I know this song. This is a good song. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't beat the swag of this song, in my opinion. Yes, but as much as I love the song, I do have a hot tea take about it. Okay. 
Not the biggest fan of the video. Heard. Uh, it goes back into the street theme that we saw on both Bad and Beat It. I think at this point it was overdone. Yeah. And yeah. the song just didn't need all of that. Yeah, this was his open the jacket and get blown away style video. <laughs> Even, uh, you know, the, the street scene of Billie Jean. I remember this video and it, it, I mean, it was cool, but you're you're right. It, we've seen it before. It was that MJ put on the wind machine and let's make a video video. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad they kind of stopped doing this for the rest of this album cycle, at least because it did need a break. And interestingly, so the model in the video who is MJ's girlfriend is named Tatiana Thompson, and she was initially taken on the tour for the album, but she was fired for kissing either Michael Jackson or one of the dancers. On stage? Yes. No shit. (laughs) And here's the part I love of this all. The girl who took her place for this song's choreography when it was performed was a backup singer on the tour named Cheryl Crow. Are you joking my ass? Yes, Cheryl Crow was one of the backup singers on the Bad Tour. Like Cheryl Crow, my Cheryl Crow? Yes, your baby (laughs) mama, Cheryl Crow. Get out of here. She looks almost unrecognizable, actually. Her hair is typical big 80s. It's that Cheryl Crow was a backup vocalist and played the girl in the way you make me feel video on stage in 1988. Get out of town. Maybe somewhere deep in my psyche, I knew that. And that's why I love her so much more. (laughs) It's not the only time she'll be mentioned this episode. So lucky you. Fucking right. All right. (laughs) Yeah. I just love that fact because obviously she went on to her own huge success, but nothing like Michael Jackson. (laughs) You never that's awesome. That, thank you for that one. That is something I did not know, but now we'll live in the cornucopia of information in my brain. <laughs> oh, you have to look it up. It's amazing. Hell yes, that's great. We'll be hearing from her again a few songs down on this album, but we're not there yet. Before we do that, we have to discuss track number three, Speed Demon. All right. So I love the backstory of Speed Demon. He wrote this song after he got a speeding ticket. And Quincy Jones challenged him to write a song about this incident. And out of that came Speed Demon. And this is one of the coolest uses of the technology on the album because we get the processing of racing cars through the synthesizer. And it's an integral part of the song. MJ even called it a machine song, and uh, he's fired up here. I love his vocal on this track. This one's a banger. I love it. It's not everyone's favorite. This is one that's cited as one of the weaker tracks on the album, and I don't think it's as good as the first two tracks, but I still love it. What do you think of Speed Demon? I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Um, Back in the day when when I was listening to it on cassette, it was my less favorite tracks. I love thinking of Michael showing up to the studio late and the producers of all producers, Quincy Jones being like, whoa, 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 calm down, Mike, calm down. He's like, oh man, I just got a speeding ticket. You got to be kidding me. And he's like, Mike, 
just write about it. <laughs> of course you do, Quincy. That's how you get these artists to just lay it out on the line and then you get a song. Like uh, Such a beautiful thought. Such a beautiful yeah. thought. I first heard this song when I was 10. So as I said, I had the history CD and loved it. And one day, thanks to the local library, I found a copy of Bad, the CD, the 2001 edition, and got it out. And obviously, I heard the first two songs, knew and loved those from history. And then I heard Speed Demon. I'm like, oh, this is a song I don't know. And it's awesome. I was so excited to hear it. Oh, just gives me adrenaline every time. I love it. And uh, another thing I'd like to mention now is the video for this song. So this song was only a promotional single in France, not a top single, but that's okay. They still got to make a video for it. And this video is glorious. It's not often considered one of his all-time great works of art. It shouldn't be, but still love it. So yeah, I've never seen this video. Oh, so it's one I have to check now. Oh, you have to watch it. It's epic. I can't wait to describe it to you. So it begins with Michael Jackson on a studio back lot. The video, actually, the studio in the video is MJJ Studios, and a lot of stop motion animated figures are chasing him. It's pretty crazy and MJ has to escape it all. I think it's kind of a metaphor for him needing to escape the paparazzi, but he goes into wardrobe, looks around at the costumes, finds a bunny costume, puts it on, runs out of there and gets on a bike, but it becomes a motorcycle when he hits the freeway and the song begins. Never mind. I can't believe I said that. I've never seen this. This is part of the moonwalker. Uh, yes, movie. it is. Yeah. Uh, it's awesome. <laughs> oh, I know. And yeah, he hits the freeway and he morphs in the different celebrities like Tina Turner. That one was my favorite morph. <laughs> Tina Turner. Uh, yeah. Pee Wee Herman was another. And then he gets to the desert, takes off his costume, puts it down. But the rabbit comes to life and they have a dance off. Yeah, man. Yeah, and man. then MJ is stopped by the cop. No moonwalking. And he has to get out of it with his autograph. But he explains, but I was with my friend Spike. <laughs> I love it so much. I love it so much. It was, it, I totally forgot that that was, or, or I didn't realize that that was the actual video. I always just thought of it as a piece of uh, of Moonwalker. It is, <laughs> but it's the video for Speed Demon. And I know it's not his top work of art. It's not quite the thriller video or even the bad video, but I just love it. And you have to admit that use of the stop motion was really cool, especially for 1989, 1988, whenever. Oh, yeah. You're looking, I mean, California Raisins and Gumby really are the like top of the stop motion things going on at that point. Um, and California raisins were super popular. You know, people were were loving that that claymation sort of. Uh, deal there. Also, that I didn't do it any fucking justice there. But that sound inside of this, we'll actually hear that again down the road in black or white, uh, right before oh, yes. it goes into the the rap verse. Um, that always harkens back whenever you know when when I got to black or white. Uh, yeah, I always thought back to this song. Oh, I love black or white too. What a banger! Great album, great song. You know it. But we're still on this great album and another great song. We've got 
the album's first ballad, Liberian Girl. This is pretty simply a love song to a girl from Liberia. This is a great vocal showcase for him because, yes, Michael Jackson was an amazing showman, but he was also one of the great vocalists of our time. This just shows it off perfectly. And interestingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, this song is beloved in Liberia. Yeah. So a woman named Margaret Carson was interviewed in the Washington Times shortly after Mr. Jackson's passing and said, quote, when that music came out, the Liberian girls were so astonished to hear a great musician like Michael Jackson thinking about a little country in Africa. It gave us hope, especially when things went bad. It made us to feel that we are still a part of the world. And that's just beautiful, in my opinion. This isn't even a social statement song. It's a love song, but just the mention of it empowered a small African country. And I think that's beautiful. And this was one that was written a while ago or a while before and was almost a Jackson's tune. Uh, and then they reworked it and it was put on this album. Yeah, I'm glad it wasn't a Jackson's tune. It was, sorry to say, it was too good to be that. Agreed. And uh, I, I go back to that Timberlake link. I always felt that pieces of this are in strawberry bubblegum on 2020 I, or, or like an inspiration inside of strawberry bubblegum. I need to re-listen to that song now. I never thought of that before, but I'm going to have to re-listen. I wouldn't be surprised if it were the case. And so this was the ninth single from the album in Europe and Australia, and it did pretty well throughout there, naturally. But because of that, there was a video made, and I would like to discuss this video because it's pretty cool. So the concept of the video is a bunch of celebrities are gathered together thinking we're going to be in the new Michael Jackson video. And at the end, it's revealed Mike was filming them the whole time. And I just love it. It's a pretty wide variety of people, not necessarily the top A-listers of 1989, all of them, but some pretty big names in there. And where else are you going to get such an eclectic group of people together? Yeah, you, You're talking about like all, running the gamut all the way across, like Mayim Balak, Blossom, she's in there all the way up to Weird Al. Uh, there's so many awesome little pieces. Sherman Helmsley or Helmsley doing the moonwalk. Uh, oh. Travolta. Uh, That's my uh, favorite. Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. Anything Grease related is my favorite. Love that <laughs> movie. That's my favorite. Paula Abdul, Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg and uh, oh, I forget the actor's name, but their back and forth was hilarious. Now, I remember this video from back in the day. It was in, I'm going to mess up the years, but it was right around in my memories when We Are the World was being made. So it was like that We Are the World-esque type of grouping of celebrities and whatnot. Uh it's such a such a fun, cool video. Spielberg, like uh, the, the oh, whole yeah. nine. Such and Bubbles, too. Bubbles the chimp. <laughs> who said I forget who said it. Like, is Michael here? He's like, no, nah, but I think Bubbles is. And Weird Al. Uh, <laughs> and then it's uh, Goldie Hawn sitting there next to Bubbles being like, there's no. the Cosby Kids. Who that was it? Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers, that's right. There's the Cosby kids, there's this, there's that. I was yeah. dying, dude. The, that's the only Cosby kid I saw was Theo, Malcolm Jamal Warner. 
<laughs> he's on the phone. He's like, hold yeah. on. I think they might need me. <laughs> At least Mr. Cosby wasn't in the video. That would have tainted it quite a bit. But <laughs> no. Yeah. Hot tea take. Don't believe Michael Jackson was a child molester. The FBI found no evidence of any wrongdoing on his part. Gonna say that. But I have another hot tea take about this video. Reminds me of this. I really wish Whoopi Goldberg never went on The View. She should have just stuck to being the great comedian and actress that she is. Oh, man, Whoopi. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. You get older, you want to yell at those kids, damn it. (laughs) Yeah. Wonderful actress, wonderful comedian. She has said some dumb shit on The View. Oh, my goodness. I could only imagine. If I had a seat on a live television show, I'd say dumb shit all the time. (laughs) I mean... Yes, but don't think we would say, oh, the Holocaust is not about race. Don't think we'd say shit that dumb. (laughs) Give me a live show. Let's see how dumb I can get. (laughs) Oh, Oh boy. We might not be friends anymore if that were, if you're saying (laughs) shit. (laughs) Heard that, heard that. But I still am a fan. I am looking forward to uh, Sister Act Free. That should be fun when she does that again, but... Is that real? Yeah, it's, it should be real. I hope it doesn't get canceled. I heard that, heard that. But we're not talking about Whoopi Goldberg anymore. I'm just sharing my view on what she should have done instead of going on that stupid show. Never liked the view. Stupid show. But we're not here to talk about that, thankfully. We're here to talk about Michael Jackson. And now we're going to move on to track five on the album, just good friends this is a song that kind of follows the thriller template of having a superstar duet as we know thriller had the girl is mine with sir paul mccartney and this one is a duet with stevie wonder which is really cool because these two men had quite a bit of history going back they were both on motown together so they knew each other for years and They'd collaborated before. I mean, the Jacksons sang back up on Wonder's 1974 classic number one, You Haven't Done Nothing. So these guys have more history than Sir Paul and Michael did. And uh, I think it's awesome that they got together to collaborate again. But interestingly, neither of them wrote this song. Yeah. This song was written by Terry Britton and Graham Lyle. They weren't nobodies. They'd written several hits for Tina Turner by this point, including What's Love Got to Do With It. And these two guys are battling over a woman. This is often considered the weakest song on the album. I disagree a bit on that, actually. And Quincy Jones even said he felt that it was a mistake. And uh, this is definitely a song that suffers from expectation. This is Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder together. It's a pretty lightweight song. But it's still a perfectly fine pop song. I mean, the writers weren't guys off the street. They did know how to make a pop song. It's just not as dynamic as you'd expect, but I still listen to it. What would you say? It's listenable. And you're right there on, like, these are well-trained, well-versed writers. I mean, Quincy Jones ain't going to put crap on the album. It just is sort of filler for me. 
over the years listening to it and and knowing both artists it almost feels like they recorded it not together you know like again two different buildings or like over the phone of course it doesn't sound like on a recording like it was a phone recording but <laughs> what i'm saying is it just it it doesn't sound cohesive uh, you know it doesn't have that back and forth vibe that you that you would expect from either of them and the way you put it uh it uh, uh a casualty of expectations is is a perfect way to to summarize uh, my opinion on this track. Yeah. So, but here's an interesting thing. So, this was not the only Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder duet released in 1987. The two men recorded a song on Stevie Wonder's album that year. Characters called "Get It." It's not as well produced as this song. It was produced by Stevie Wonder himself, not quite as up-to-date as the stuff here. The song itself is actually more interesting. There's more interplay between the two guys. I personally would have preferred it if Quincy and Michael had produced it and put Get It on this album instead of Just Good Friends because it is a Stevie Wonder composition and... uh, It would have sounded a bit out of place in the form that it is, but I think if Quincy and Michael had done it, it would have been really cohesive. And it's just a more interesting song, and there is more interplay between Michael and Stevie. I think it would have been better. I still like this song okay. It's still two of the best artists ever, but I think Get It would have been, with some refinement, a better choice for the Michael-Stevie duet here. But I guess Stevie needed a hit on his album, even though it wasn't a hit, sadly. It only made it to number 80 on the Hot 100, so... Yep, not not, uh, not what we expected. Not quite. I still listen to it, but I will say, I do... I like The Girl Is Mine. I do think it's a better song than that, though. Yeah. I do, better yeah. Better than The Girl Is Mine? Little bit, yeah. Heard. Just a bit sleeker to me. Catchier. I'm gonna say it, but... Okay. I hear it. But interestingly, even though this was a duet between two superstars, because it's kind of a filler, even though I still listen to it, it wasn't a single. No video was made. But a lot of people still know the song because of the album it's on. So it doesn't really matter in that case. But I do think it was a missed opportunity to not even have Michael or Stevie write the song. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Well, I have those two powerhouses sing a duet that neither of them wrote yeah i agree with you there it doesn't make sense not at all i mean stevie wonder had a song right there for use they could have done and they chose this instead i don't understand at all i mean stevie wonder's one of the great composers of our time Third. i don't think that's a hot tea take that's just a fact in most people's minds, I would think. The guy wrote Superstition, for Christ's sake. Yeah, I'm trying so, try to try to take the other side on that argument. I challenge yeah, you. Exactly. Stevie Wonder is a wonder. Unfortunately, we won't be hearing from him again on this episode. I'm a little sad about that. We'll have to talk about Stevie at some point, though. But in the meantime, we're going to flip the album over. In many cases, the tape or the vinyl, either way. And track number six is Another Part of Me. 
The song debuted before the album. It was in Captain EO, which was Michael Jackson's Disney World, Disneyland attraction that started in 1980s. I don't remember where it was. That's bad of me. No, you're good. It was in Epcot. And it was like, Mickey had this silver suit. It was a whole movie, uh, sci-fi blast. It was crazy. Like, of course, now you're watching it sort of cringeworthy, but it was way ahead of its time. And uh, if I'm correct, it only played in Epcot Center for like the first year it was out. Uh, and then finally you could you could see it here on a VHS or I know a buddy who has Captain EO. Um, and it was cool. It was it was one of those once in a lifetime experiences um, with MJ and Disney. For me as a kid, it was I, I never went to Disney back then, you know, that it, as a family, we hadn't gone, but it was like one of those things like, oh, my God, Michael Jackson and Mickey Mouse in the same house. Let's go. Yeah, I actually I got a Captain EO shirt the last time I went to Disney in 2010. I don't think the movie was still playing at the time, but I'm guessing they sold the shirt because it was only a year after MJ had died. Very so good. his merch was kind of hot again. because oh, there was yeah. a lot of it. I mean. There's a family photo of us on that trip. I'm wearing a Michael Jackson dangerous shirt I got from like JC Penney. It's actually in my mom's office. It's like, oh, I used to have that shirt. Oh yeah. Have you ever seen Captain EO? I have not actually. It's gotta be out there in this day and age. Oh yeah. It's a fun little watch. It's cool, man. No, I do need to, but I promise I'm not a fake fan, even though I haven't seen it. So <laughs> you're good. This this song was also in uh, the just going to childhood memories. It was part. It was an attack, a dance attack in the Moonwalker game, and it was a stage. And I, I kid you not, if you listen to the backing track of this, the bass line, um, I don't even think they re-recorded it for like an 8-bit track on the game. Like it just was spot on for the game. Yeah. Well, I would hope so. After all, it took them over 800 multi-track tapes to make this album. I would hope it's Sonic Perfection for a video game. <laughs> I heard that. After so, all that work. Yeah. And his duet on this, the, the lady who sang on this with him, she was the co-writer of the song, uh, previous the the uh, just good friends. Am I no, correct? In no, that? two oh, guys thought... wrote just good friends. Oh shit! See, I thought she had writing credits on just good friends. Okay. Um, no, I think the lady you're referring to, she has writing credits on another song here, but we'll get to that. And she sang on got the. Got you. Got you. We'll get to her. Oh shit! Yes, what am, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of yes. myself. You're you're right. You're we right. We haven't gotten to Miss Saida yet, but no, she's no, an yes. How could I even mess that up? This was actually supposed to be street or could have been Streetwalker. Yes. Um, but it ended up not. They they battled that, if, uh, you know, him and Quincy went back and forth and were like, let's sit down and really objectively figure out what this is going to be. And I'm glad it was another part of me. Yes, Streetwalker's a good song, but it does go on for too long. It was decided because Michael Jackson's manager at the time, Frank DeLeo, was dancing to it as Quincy Jones described it. His fat ass was dancing to it. <laughs> I did not read that. I love it. So Jones said that means it should be on the album. There you and go. So it was. It has a very nice message message of unity and love. It was the sixth single from the album, and it did well. 
It peaked at number 11 on the Hot 100, but this actually was a bit of an unfortunate footnote. This was the first Michael Jackson single solo to miss the top 10 since 1978. Really? Yep. (laughs) And, uh, okay, I'm going to say this right now. I think I can kind of see why this might have been chosen as a single before Smooth Criminal for video purposes, but how still? Agreed. They had to have it in the hopper. Uh, They had to know that they were going to release Smooth Criminal when they did, in my opinion, As as a single, I mean. Yeah, because, well, the video for this song is just tour footage from the bad tour, which happens when an artist is on tour. They put together a video. It showcases the pandemonium of it a bit, okay, but it isn't a really crazy, notable video. And maybe that had something to do with the song underperforming a bit. I do like this song, but it isn't one of the top tracks here. There's better songs surrounding it. I mean, I don't think I'm going to break too many hearts by saying that, but it did get a nice pop culture appearance in 1998 when Chris Tucker danced to it in Rush Hour. Truth, truth. That's a movie I haven't seen. I only have seen that clip of it. Never, you never seen Rush Hour? I have not. All right, that's a good one to say. I'm sitting here embarrassed as hell. For everybody, I cannot believe that I just tried to talk about I just can't stop loving you in another part of me. I'm down <laughs> at Atlantic City. I'm seeing my favorite band this weekend. And uh, the brain is a little fuzzy. So sorry about that one. <laughs> yeah. Only connection between Fish and MJ, I'm afraid, this time. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. I had to work him in there somehow, you know? <laughs> of course, yes. You're in Atlantic City. I'm at home in boring old Baltimore, but uh. <laughs> we're still bringing it to you. That. And now that that's out of the way, perfect transition for us to talk about track number seven. You can't dispute this track, Seven. I know you can't. Shit, boy, you can't dispute this track. I don't care what track it's on, but it's on my cut, my highly coveted number seven spot. Yeah, so track seven, Man in the Mirror. This song was written by Saida Garrett and Glenn Ballard. Quincy Jones just had a meeting and said, I want you to come up with some material for the album. I don't think he was quite aware of how much Michael was ready to put on that he wrote himself, but they were at this point and they wrote the song and Saida Garrett, she started in the industry. In fact, the year before in 1986, she appeared on a number one hit. She sang backing vocals on Madonna's Papa Don't Preach, an awesome song, by the way. And Glenn Ballard was still up and coming, but he went on to write quite a few songs, most notably almost 10 years later on Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. He went from Michael Jackson and Wilson Phillips to Alanis Morissette, but that's what he did. I I can see that. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm not going to go down the Alanis Morissette rabbit hole today, but there's quite a bit I can say about her. I can't wait to see her at the Ocean's Calling Festival I'm going to, but Heard that. this isn't a podcast about her. We're still discussing Michael Jackson. This song is amazing. It's about how if you want to make a difference in the world, you got to look at yourself and start there. And uh, even though Michael Jackson didn't write the song, he sings it like he did write it. And... Uh, This is definitely one of his best vocal performances ever. Actually, it might be his best. This song gives me chills every time I hear it. It's very moving. 
I've always loved this. I'm getting teary-eyed talking about it. This song is just indescribable in every way. The choir, Andre Crouch Choir takes it over the top. Yeah, no, teary-eyed is a perfect way to feel about this song. The power of this song is untouchable. Looking into this album and finding out that Michael Jackson did not have writing credits on Man in the Mirror was by far one of the most mind-blowing factoids that I've unearthed through this podcast process that we've been, this adventure that we've been on together. I would be hard-pressed to tell you that I didn't feel like they wrote this song for him, especially what he was going through at the time. I mean, for 1985, he was out of everyone's, he just shut the doors, okay? So I don't think they wrote it as a, oh, We're going to convince everybody that he's making a change, but I'm privy to think that they wrote it with him in mind as an anecdotal or as a personal experience type piece. I can definitely hear it. And it just sums it up very well. I think this song did mark a bit of a turning point. He was always very uh, philanthropic, but I think he was a bit more so even after this song. This gave him a message to uh, musically portray hip that part of himself and it was a perfect vessel in it. and my favorite line in is i've been a victim of a selfish kind of love because it shows that hey there's more out there and uh, we can do better and get out of our own heads and make a difference out there and i just think this is such a beautiful song he gave an amazing performance of it at the 1988 grammys extended to oh it's amazing and the video was also really different for him because it hardly features him he's only featured briefly at the end and it's a montage of historical and contemporary events but it does what it needs to do what were you going to do for a video with this you know yeah except some avant-garde like looking at yourself in the mirror and watching yourself change like no not not even needed and because this Again, in my opinion, this song transcends just one's look to change yourself and and really, like you said, speaks to the whole world being able to step outside of themselves and make a change for the rest of our lives. (laughs) There's no, I remember the first time I ever heard this song and it'll stay up there in the top forever for me this is this is one of the most quintessential michael jackson songs uh in my opinion yeah and it only gained the profundity after his passing because i did put on the history cd right after i was told by my dad that he died of course this was the one that got to me first to hear man in the mirror took on another level with him no longer being here but before we move on I mentioned briefly on last week's episode that the Grammys are bullshit and there are many exhibits as to why. And Man in the Mirror is the subject of one of the top exhibits of this point. So a song as great as this was naturally nominated for Record of the Year. You'd think it would be a shoo-in, right? No, it lost to Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy. Ad lost to to Don't Worry, Be Happy? Man in the Mirror, the song did. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I thought you said album. No, no. The song Man in the Mirror lost to Don't Worry, Be Happy. And uh, yeah, that one makes no sense to me at all. 
Well, didn't you say earlier that there was some chart where it was like top singers of 88 and he was on the bottom? Oh, yeah. Rolling Stone ranked him that year. It was crazy because MJ, he swept the awards a few years earlier in 84 with Thriller. The perception had changed a bit against him. And I guess Bobby McFerrin was a safer option. He was a jazz artist who happened to have a pop hit, which was not expected. But I mean, come on, it's don't worry, be happy. Well, I mean, you used the correct word or you used a a perfect word. And that's safer, Um, of course. And we could go down this rabbit hole for days, but safer being what they want to portray to America. Don't worry, be happy, even though it was a quirky pop hit, was at that point in that year, I I mean, it was everywhere, literally everywhere. We danced around my house to it, uh, my father, my mom, the whole family. And McFerrin's work throughout life was something that we had listened to as a household anyway. Uh, even afterwards, you know, with him and Yo-Yo Ma, uh, some of his best work. And in, in my opinion, I'm getting off the side here. Bottom line is safety. And the media was rallying against Michael Jackson. Again, this is my opinion, uh, uh, rallying against him at this point. And that was a perfect way to show, nah, Michael ain't it anymore. We'll yeah. put Bobby McFerrin above him. I, I like I can like I said I could go we're going mini series if I start talking about the atrocities that have befallen Michael Jackson by the media. <laughs> but, I mean, so uh, could I trust me, especially involving his court cases. But this is not right. what the podcast is about, and no, I just. In hindsight, it really does seem goofy because I don't actually think Don't Worry, Be Happy is one of the worst songs of all time like a lot of other people do. Heard. But it is not on the level of Man in the Mirror. It, it's that simple to me, and I don't understand how it could have been. And again, this song just has a better message. I mean, Don't Worry, Be Happy is a pretty vague message that tells you to ignore your problems in a way. And this one doesn't. This acknowledges it's hard to make a change, but you can still. So. Oh, that's a good point. I like that. Polar opposites. Polar yeah, opposites. That's my number one issue with it. It's like, okay, the song with more substance to it lost, regardless of what you think of the artist, it lost to this really, it's an airy song. I mean, it's a vague message. It's not horrible, but I'm going off anyway. No, I'm good. sorry. Wrong Grammy choice. We're moving on to track number eight. I Just Can't Stop Loving You. This is another ballad, this time a love song, written by Mr. Jackson, but he did it as a duet with Saida Garrett, who wrote Man in the Mirror, but she was not the first choice. He at first wanted to record this song with Barbara Streisand, and she said no. And then he wanted to record it with Whitney Houston, but... Clive Davis put a stop to that because they weren't on the same label. He thought it would interfere. And well, Clive Davis is kind of a douche. He was not that great to his um, top star, Miss Houston. But that's another rabbit hole. I have some feelings on Whitney Houston. Also not treated great by the media. Deserved a lot better. I, I would like to hope that neither of these are personal or professional no's as far as Michael asking Babs or Whitney Houston to to uh, duet. I would like to think both of them would love to do it. I uh, no, Michael, I think this is. 
uh, Michael you know, Jackson and Whitney Houston were friends. Yeah, most def, most def. I yeah. would think this is just more of the media protecting or, you know, the big business protecting artists and being like, nah, can't go near Michael Jackson right now. Oh, yeah. Whitney Houston was portrayed as America's sweetheart in 1987. She was a goody two shoes to the media, even though that wasn't really who she was. But another rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, no, that 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 has to be big business protecting those artists. I mean, in but the case still, of I, Whitney Houston, it definitely was. I mean, for Garrett not to know that she was even singing on this track until the day she walked in the studio. Uh, this song is a beautiful song. One of one of my favorites. Gosh, I love this song. This is a really pretty song. I'm going <laughs> to say it's my least favorite on the album. No shit. This is just, okay, heard that. Heard that. It's still a good song. I've known it for a long time. It's a really pretty song. It It just doesn't connect with me in the same way the others on the album do. I'm a sucker for a soft verse with a banger, powerful refrain. And this one crescendos you in and day crescendos you back out into the next verse i i this is one one of my one of my jams one of my feel-good jams that i just pop on every once in a while yeah i will say i do think it's for the best that saida garrett was the duet partner because this is a soft song this isn't an epic that would require a voice like a barbara or a whitney i'd like to think that whitney would add this next level of these high falsetto pieces in towards the end of it like i could see her going off i won't even try to to sing the part where i'm talking about but towards the end where they could just riff off each other i, I think that would have been pretty interesting um this also was a, a polar opposite again of the rest of the album um you know no electric drums we're getting this really soft beautiful sound uh and i think that adds to the allure of this song for me as well on an album bad you know i get a, a nice beautiful stop to it i do wish whitney and michael would have duetted together that was a true missed opportunity it's a shame it never happened that's all i can say agreed and uh so interestingly this was the lead single but like i said before i feel like it was basically a promo single but it was still a number one hit yeah, so. I'm surprised. I'm surprised this was the lead single when you told me that. Um, I can see where it showcases Jackson's vocal range and and mastery, but not sure why it would go out before a lot of the songs on this album. Yes, that might be part of why it's my least favorite. I'm like, why was this the lead single? It's still a really good song, but not what I would have chosen. And this is where your baby mama appears again. So on the tour, Cheryl Crow sang this with Michael Jackson. She oh. did the Garrett part. Oh, really? Yep. Do you, is there video out there? Is yes. there sound out there of this? I gotta hear that. Yes, I watched my um, Michael Jackson Live at Wembley 1988 DVD. And this is one of the earliest songs in the set. He calls out, Cheryl, come on out for this. Is it good? It's pretty good, I think. I mean, his live vocals weren't quite as good as the studio, but it's still Michael Jackson. And you could hear then she has a big old voice on her. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Was her part good? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. She did her thing. She still had a voice. I mean, I am kind of glad, though, that she didn't stay stifled into being just the backup singer because watching it, I didn't see 
the road she would take because she looks so different on it. And <laughs> I'm glad she went to the singer-songwriter mode eventually and wrote her own songs and sang them because that was a lot more effective. This was too glossy for Sheryl Crow. I still think she does it well, but this was not like Sheryl Crow doing picture with Kid Rock where she kind of breaks your heart a bit. That wasn't this at all. Nah, it just shows, you know, you got to pay your dues. You got to be there in the background. Next thing you know, you're on the bad tour. Next thing you know, you're up there on my top five baby mamas of all time. I mean, it's it's a really great, great career path. <laughs> yep. Forget Lance Armstrong. Cheryl Crow has Corey Cross. Damn Skippy. <laughs> But when it came to the Dangerous Tour, Saida Garrett did join him for backing vocals on that tour, and she did it with him again. That's cool. That's awesome. She did Dreamgirls, right? I don't believe so, no. I mean, she's still gotten to do some cool stuff, Saida Garrett, so. No, she did. Love You, I Do. The Hudson one from Dreamgirls, she wrote it. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you yeah. were talking about And I Am Telling You. Oh, no, no, no. But but yeah, I, th- I thought she had Dreamgirls. She's been all over the board, though. Yeah. I mean, she's everywhere. I knew about her strictly because of Michael and Madonna, of course. But OK, she's done more. <laughs> Tevin, yeah, Tevin Campbell, Donna Summer. Like, go on, girl. Really cool lady, <laughs> I think. Really cool lady. Heck yeah. Yeah, cooler than the lady described in the next song, Dirty Diana. Dirty Diana. She ain't cool. No, she's a groupie. And subject-wise, this is obviously a sequel to Billie Jean. But it's a rock song, and we get a guitar part from Steve Stevens, best known for his work with Billy Idol. And uh, I love this song so much. I think this is probably his most underrated chart-topping hit. Yep. I'm going to say it now because he sounds terrified on this track. I I agree. That's the point, though. And I love it. Exactly. You said Billie Jean, but and I think it was Rolling Stones. And I'm going to mess up a quote from somebody. But they were saying the fear of Billie Jean is in this song, the sexual fear of that happening and i can see that i can see that i a lot of people say this is a hard rock song i don't know man this is still pop with some guitar on it for me but i love the way this song is written performed and the the driving feeling behind this you're right it's so underrated yeah and another issue i have with the public's perception of mj at this time is i think a lot of people saw this song as oh well he's just afraid of sex And there might be some truth to that. However, here's what I'm going to say. Groupies are very often glamorized in rock music, but in a way, there's something pretty scary about it. I mean, they're literally following you around. Uh, You know, any overindulgence or any overindulgence, that's what I'll use. You know, anybody who just goes crazy about something, like people that would go down to Atlantic City and follow a band around, you know, that that's scary. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but as far as groupies go, it is. It's scary, man. It's scary to, to think that you're almost, you got those creepers at, at, at every yeah. level, those stalkers. That's what I was, you know, you're stalked by certain people. Even if their intentions inside uh, of their mind are, are in the right place, Still, you're an individual. You're you're not, you know, you're not a puppet. I mean, I have my doubts about that because, well, 
I'm going to go back a couple weeks when I did research for the band on the run episode in the book I read one of the people heavily interviewed was Jojo Lane, who was married to Denny Lane of Wings, but she was a groupie and reading the book I just thought, well, this bitch is a liar. No shit. Like I didn't, she was the least credible person in the book. She thought Linda McCartney was jealous of her all the time. Like, oh Christ. Like, no, she wasn't. Come on. I mean, I'm not saying I was there, but this woman seemed to impress with herself. But I don't want to speak ill of the dead. She's no longer with us, but I didn't come across liking her. I don't think these groupies always have good intentions. I hate to say it. And I know she's not the only one who's written a book. I mean, there's one groupie who literally had casts of rock stars penises that's weird it is weird but it's also pretty fucking badass i mean <laughs> it is but my point being it's that badassly weird yeah, but it connects to this song because hey mj saying this is actually kind of scary in a way and i love that he did that i think he was really ahead of his time doing that agreed Because the discourse on that was not there in 1987 or 1988. And like I said, this was a number one hit. It was actually the album's fifth number one hit. He broke a record there. And Michael Jackson became the first artist to have five number one hits in the U.S. off of one album. And George Michael and Whitney Houston both came close in the same time period with four number one hits, but they couldn't get the fifth. And so he still did this, but sadly, it's not one of his most well-remembered number ones, really. It gets overshadowed by other songs, and it really shouldn't be. This is an awesome song, and the video's pretty cool. It's just a live video, but still has Steve Stevens with huge hair. (laughs) Oh, I love this track. And one of my favorite stories is, of course, this song was included on the set list for the Bad Tour. and. At the show, when he came to London, one night, Princess Diana was attending, and Michael said, oh, I have to remove this song from the set list. It's Dirty Diana. We can't perform that with her here. Only to find out, oh, she loved the song, and she wanted to hear it. So it had to be performed anyway, because she was such a fan of it. Yeah, I could see I could see her being a fan of this. Yeah, well, I mean, Princess Di, unfortunately, didn't have the best relationship with the media herself. It, well, it led to her death. So, yeah, this is just that driving. I mean, when he him belting out Dirty Diana is is up there with with a lot of his top vocal achievements, in, in, in my opinion. Dirty Diana. Amazing, amazing song. And underrated in his canon. Weird to say that a number one hit is underrated, but this one is. Well, when you have that many number one hits. Yeah, when you have 13 number ones, (laughs) uh, it does happen, but this is the one that goes under the radar too much for my taste. Heard. But somehow, one of the songs that went number one was not the next song. (laughs) Crazy, right? I know. So the next song, it was the closer on the initial vinyl and cassette pressings of the album, Smooth Criminal. This song actually started off as Al Capone, it was called. And that version was released on Bad 25 in 2012. But yeah, this song is epic. So it starts off with the sound of Michael Jackson's heartbeat. It was processed in the Synclavier synthesizer, which is cool as shit. Super cool. And this is just an epic tune. It's a story about 
a woman being attacked possibly and he asks annie are you okay and that name comes from a cpr dummy that, that's another fact when i got uh looking this up that annie are you okay was actually inspired by rescue annie uh yeah. <laughs> the, C, the cpr dummy which is crazy when I first heard this song, I thought of like Little Orphan Annie, of course, but now whenever I hear that name, I always think of Smooth Criminal, obviously. Little, little T on this, I still, every single day of my life, try to do the lean over from this video. And it's it's one of the most, one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my whole entire life. This video was my jam for a million years. I mean, let alone this, this track, but yeah. There's, I'd call you a liar if you'd never tried that dance move once. (laughs) Anybody out there, you know? Yeah, but gonna break your heart a bit. Oh no! It was an illusion. Cables and the harness were used for it. I know. (laughs) This move is not actually possible. No, they they those shoes were fitted, so like they had a slide where they could go over, um, like a something that would would keep them on the ground. Uh, which is still worth trying at least one million times. <laughs> yes, but yes, amazing song, amazing video. And another factor that I love, the outfit that he wears in the video is cool as hell. Oh, yeah. And it was inspired by an old Hollywood legend, Fred Astaire, and his outfit in a film called The Bandwagon. Michael Jackson loved old Hollywood. Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly were his idols. And when he did this video, Fred Astaire died in 1987. So the same year this album came out, I feel like this was kind of a tribute to one of his heroes. And I love that he did that. That's awesome. I I did not know uh, that much into it, but that's super cool. Heck yeah. Yeah, and I just like that Michael really acknowledged his elders, I guess, when it came to entertainment and uh, respected them and gave them the due they that he felt they deserved and uh, brought it really to a new generation because that was not the MTV generation. Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, but he was bringing it back for him a bit, and I love that he did that. Hot tea take right here, choreography-wise, smooth criminal, better than thriller. Choreography. I'm not going to argue with you on that. That was my shit. My favorite choreography might be bad, though. Heard that. Just because it's so badass. I love it. I like it. And uh, I am going to mention this now. So smooth criminal... It was not a number one hit. It peaked at number seven on the Hot 100 in early 1989. I'm guessing they waited to release it to make this video because they couldn't have thrown together a video for Smooth Criminal. You couldn't do that. You couldn't do a historic montage or tour footage live. No, you couldn't do it. And they made the epic video. It got what it deserved. Still wasn't a number one hit, sadly. But it was still the album's sixth top ten hit. and. Interestingly, the song became a hit again in 2001, 
when it was covered by a band called Alien Ant Farm. What did you think when you first heard that version? Because you were more present to the world in 2001 than I was. I loved it. They did a cool job, man. They didn't take too much uh, of their, they didn't go out there too much. You know, they stayed close to home on it. Uh, I really enjoyed the the way they put it up. Alien Ant Farm gets a, a double thumbs up from me or even right then got a double thumbs up from me uh, when they did it. Yeah, it's not my favorite. It's not quite my style of music. It's still a great song, but I will always go back to the original, of course. But Most definitely. And it's just kind of funny that Alien Ant Farm were one hit wonders with a hit by somebody else. <laughs> that. This is what I was talking about where they had it in the hopper, though. I got to believe that they were doing all this behind the scenes, and that's why it wasn't uh, released as a single earlier on. Oh, no, they definitely needed to make sure they had time to make an, a video for it. I still can't believe this never hit number one. I would go out on a limb and say this is one of the ones that you could play for a range of just random listeners, and they could immediately name the song and name the artist. Oh, yeah. And what's really crazy to me is this song was not included on history, so I didn't know it at first. No shit. Nope. Wow. (laughs) And that's pretty crazy to think about because, I mean, this might be his best known not number one hit. Heard. Possibly. Might be a couple other contenders for it, but this one... No, Thriller's his most known, not number one hit. But Thriller was never number one. Nope. Wow. Look at me. I'm I'm over here okay. saying I'm. But this one's probably a close second. I'm going to say that right now. I don't think that's a shocker. I think everybody knows this song. It's an awesome, awesome song, and uh, you just can't go wrong with Smooth Criminal. Perfection. Yep. And so, for many listeners, that was how the album ended. But if you were rich and got a CD in 1987 or 1988, you got an extra song called Leave Me Alone. This was Michael's message to the haters. He was saying, like, just stop dogging me around. Leave me alone. Let me do what I want. When I first got this CD out of the library, this was the one that went on repeat for me. I just love this song. And it means a lot to me personally because I'm somebody who had a lot of haters. I've been bullied a lot. I was a lot as a kid. And a message song like this just meant a lot to me because this is just what you want to say to people. Just leave me alone. Just stop dogging me around. Yeah, it was a perfect message from him. In my opinion, I say I don't think it necessarily fits this album the way everything else does. It actually sounds a little bit older then the rest of this stuff, I'm not, I'm not saying that it sounded like it came before the rest of this stuff. It sounded like it came after uh, the way it was produced and the way it was performed. I mean, this is his get out of my face piece. Come on, man. You know, enough with this wacko Jacko stuff. Yeah. And uh, I love that the video took that on, too. So this was the eighth single from the album outside of North America. And he made a video that poked fun at these rumors about him. It had the crazy headlines about him buying the elephant man bone, elephant man's bones and sleeping in the chamber and all that crap. And it's an amusement park setting, which is fitting considering he would eventually have an amusement park of his own. And uh, it's kind of like a demented fun house visually. A lot of dogs, 
Liz Taylor's featured in it because they were really good friends and it was rumored he had a shrine to her. You know, thinking about it now, I wonder if Neverland Ranch sort of came about in this play against like, you know what? I am. I'm just going to I'm just going to embrace it. I'm building a theme park out here. You know, that's just how I'm going to do it (sighs) again. I go down the rabbit hole, but some of this was driven into him by the media as well, you know, where it's like he's he almost loses himself inside of that. Leave yeah. him alone. Leave him alone. I sound like the Britney guy. Leave Britney alone. Leave Michael Jackson alone. <laughs> yeah. But MJ didn't need someone to say it for him. He said it himself effectively. I think it's crazy this was ever left off any edition of the album. Yeah. I think it's a perfect closing track. I love this song. I never knew it as a closing track. For me, Smooth Criminal is how you bang the end of that album. I don't know, man. Uh, if this was the, the ending track, I probably would have enjoyed it as the ending track. But for me, it ended on Smooth Criminal. Leave Me Alone is, in its own right, a beautiful, awesome, powerful song. But excuse me, Smooth Criminal is the way you, you end that album. Different strokes for different folks or different experiences because I only ever heard the CD. So my vinyl ends on Smooth Criminal. That's a bit weird to me. It doesn't not work, but it's weird to me. It's like, well, where's Leave Me Alone? (laughs) Like what? And uh, there we have Bad. Oof, what a fun one. Oh, yeah. So now this is the point where I would give a grade. This is probably the easiest day I've given out so far here. I like this album better than Thriller. I always have. Just top perfection, to put it lightly. Heard. I'm guessing Heard. you're an A, too. I got to give it an A. I got to give it an A. Pop perfection is a great alliteration and beautiful uh, way to, to summarize this album. Um, so many songs that still live on today man in the mirror smooth criminal i mean almost this whole entire album you could play uh, spike lee was totally right it's still fresh and it will continue to be fresh for the foreseeable future yes i mean this is basically a greatest hits album yeah i mean it reads like it now you know yeah knowing that i held that all white tape in my hands back then and listening to it for the first time, it was definitely my favorite. What's your favorite track on this album? I, it's not the one I listened to the most, but I have to go with Man in the Mirror. Man in the Mirror, Man in the Mirror is, is that jam. Smooth Criminal for me all the way. Smooth Criminal is how I lived my life. Oh, that's, that sounded terrible. Smooth Criminal is how I lived my life. No, the swagger of Smooth Criminal is so inspiring and deep-rooted inside of my childhood slash adolescence slash everyday life trying to do the lean. Uh, definitely my favorite <laughs> track. <laughs> that one's up there for me, but none of the songs are bad. Even though the album's bad. (laughs) I I wonder if the origination of bad being used in its opposite sense, like people saying like, ooh, she bad as in a compliment. I wonder if it started with this album. That'd be be wild to look back into. I would like to think that, but (laughs) I don't know the origination of that for sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So this was a fun one. Thank you for picking it. Even though you picked it, this is one of my top five albums ever easily. 
Hell yeah. So I'm really glad that we got to do this one. But next week, this is my pick. Another one of my beloved top five albums. We will be discussing the queen of pop herself, Madonna, and her 1989 masterpiece, Like a Prayer. Oh, I can't wait to discuss this one. This album is amazing. Oh, I can't wait for Like a Prayer. Yeah, this, can't wait. this is one of the ones where I hope that we inspire a few people to, or a few more people that have never heard Like a Prayer to listen to it. Um, because I think out of all the Madonna albums, this one is the one that will surprise people as far as like, oh shit. You know, I think there's a common misconception or or not a misconception, but a common, this is exactly what Madonna is. And I think uh, people will be surprised. Yeah. So I really can't wait for that. Counting down the hours, days, minutes until we talk about like a prayer. But in the meantime, um, while we're waiting with David Braff, Follow this podcast wherever you're listening to it. We're on Spotify, Anchor, Apple, Amazon, Audible. Subscribe, listen, leave us a review and rating. We really appreciate it. Also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcasts for goodies related to whatever we're discussing that week. And uh, yeah, this week, actually, I forgot to mention this earlier. This was something I thought you would have loved. I found an acoustic cover of Bad performed by Billie Eilish. I think I've heard that. I think I've heard that before. I, I, was it was it well done? I mean, I'm not a fan of hers, and I don't think that song should ever be done acoustically, but I thought you might like it because that's your girl. Yeah, I was going to say, why are you trying to hurt me, man? Why are you trying to hurt me with those words? Yeah, now I got to go back and check it out. But yeah. Yeah, don't, don't, don't end the episode talking shit on Eilish, all right? Oh. <laughs> yeah, but you, you'll see cool stuff like that. You get to see, you'll see Britney and Michael performing, Britney Spears, that is, performing The Way You Make Me Feel. Cool stuff like that's on there yes. related to the album. There'll be some cool stuff for Madonna, too. All very exciting. And yeah, uh, yeah just follow it and uh, Hope you enjoy the content. And in the meantime, just stay bad while you listen to bad. (laughs) All right. Have a good one, everyone. Peace.